We'll be in Matthew 24, verse 15. We have some ground to cover in its difficult territory because we are in the middle of a broader teaching. And I really wasn't sure how to do this other than just to drive straight on through and talk about some things. Being in the middle, I invite you to go back, if you weren't here Wednesday night, and listen to the teaching. It'll give, you know, I'll try and help bring you up to speed if you weren't here as quickly as I can. And then we're going to deal with some stuff here. Um, Let me just read verse 15 and following to you, and then we'll pray and get on into this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So that if they say to you, Behold, He is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Oh, Father. Oh, Jesus, show us the meaning behind the words. And give us insight and understanding. Lord, I pray that You will lay out very simply before us what what it was that You spoke. Help us to see and to know. And as we do so, Jesus, we just we marvel at You. We marvel at Your glory. We, we marvel at the, the thoughts of God. Who can even fathom the mind of our God? And we pray as we walk through these things, Lord, that You'll show us. I'm asking, Father, for an extra measure this morning of Your Holy Spirit to keep us alert and attentive and dialed in to what we're about to find out. And in all things, may they draw us closer to Jesus as we pray in His name. Amen. Everyone goes through hard times. Everyone faces storms. I don't personally believe in the mythological story about Midas, King Midas and his touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. Although, in the past, I have been called Pastor Silverspoon. <laughs> Friends, family in, in the past, because it seemed like everything always worked out for Rick. I was thinking about that this week and about the fact that we all have hard times in our life and we go through struggles and pain and difficulty and And I was remembering back to my birth. I was born with a serious birth defect. 21 surgeries from the age of 3 months to the age of 20 in my life. My knees ache. I've got diverticulosis and my teeth are on borrowed time. (laughs) Simply by starting a church... Things have been said and assumed about me that not only were not true, they were deeply hurtful. I've got three children at home. If you're a parent, you know right there how painful that is. (laughs) Painful not because they are such a pain, but because you love them so much. And they have no idea that as badly as they hurt, you hurt that much, if not far more for them. I have three children on the other side of the world and I can't get them home. And the weight is excruciating. And I'm sharing with the, you with, with this, all this with you not because I'm looking for sympathy. Please, no. I'm one of the happiest guys I know. I am. I love my life. I am profoundly and phenomenally and divinely blessed. I've got a great life. 
fantastic kids, a wonderful wife, I'm blessed to live where I live, a church that I can't even believe exists, all of this stuff, I'm in a great spot. But the reality is that Jesus said, Matthew 5.45, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the rain on the, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody, everybody feels the tender warmth of the sun. Everybody feels the stifling heat. Everybody enjoys a gentle spring rain. Everybody goes through the driving torrents. And gang, when it comes to hardship by persecution, if you are in Christ Jesus, you especially know what pain means. Now listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, I'm not trying to turn you off. I just want you to know the truth. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure. That treasure is, I believe, the Holy Spirit of Christ in us. This treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested, may be seen in our body. Which means if in Christ you have terrific persecution and difficulty, praise God, you are able to show more of Jesus in that than anybody else. If life is hard right now for you, hallelujah, people can see Jesus and how you walk through that. That is a great blessing. And we have to remember that our lives are a tiny blip on the screen. I mean, a a flash and it's over. All flesh, as we talked about Wednesday night, all flesh is like grass and the wind blows over and it's gone. And that's not a negative thing. That's a very good thing. Well, we're trying to establish homes and family and, and income and success in this world and it's over like that. Praise God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us these things to discourage us or dissuade us from following Jesus. Just the opposite. Jesus said in John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. The King James, I love that translation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And it's not the simple, don't worry, be happy, you know. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, just don't worry. No, it's don't worry. Be of good cheer in Jesus Christ. We're all going to go through hard times. We're all going to going to hit the hard stuff from time to time. Well, that didn't sound really good. Don't hit the hard stuff. <laughs> you want to avoid the hard stuff. Don't go to the hard stuff when you're having the hard times. Go to Jesus when you're having the hard times. <laughs> Wednesday night, we jumped into the deep end of the pool. Wednesday night, we began treading water, and we did it for about an hour and a half, just covering 14 verses of Matthew 24. And those of you who are here, bless you for hanging in there. We covered a lot of ground. We've got to cover some more ground this morning. This teaching in Matthew 24, it was a private teaching. It wasn't given to the crowds, the multitudes. It wasn't even given to all 12 apostles. Mark 13.3 indicates it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And that was it. And these four guys, they came up to Jesus and they were asking Him, Lord, tell us about the signs of the end. You're coming. Can you explain this stuff to us? They were a bit confused. You see, they had just walked down off of the Temple Mount complex with Jesus. He had just said, Jerusalem, your house is going to be left to you desolate. Luke tells us, he said, you did not recognize the day of your visitation. And so your house is going to be, in our words, trashed. And left desolate. So they come off the Temple Mount. And there the apostles are going, How's that possible? Look at the Temple Mount, Lord. Look at these wonderful stones. Look at these wonderful buildings. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, boys, not one stone will be left upon another. He crosses over the Kidron Valley. Walks up onto the Mount of Olives, where the Bible tells us he spent many of the evenings in the last week of his life just hanging out under the olive trees and the stars, praying. And he sits down, and these four guys are confused. I I do not believe they even knew what they were asking. And they said, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I mean, they're like children asking 400 questions at once. When will be this and that? And could you explain this too? Because we don't understand that. And, and, And Jesus, he begins to teach. 
And in Matthew 24, we have the greatest prophetic teaching of Jesus Christ in His entire ministry. Now, as I said, we covered 14 verses of it. We're having to pick up this morning right where we left off and go. If you weren't here Wednesday night, you can download it and listen on the internet. Please do so. Because this is something that's absolutely critical for all believers in Jesus to understand and to know. Let me at least give you a simple chronological outline. Because I believe Jesus' teaching, at least down through 31, is chronological. I'll explain why in a few minutes. And I ask you, whatever your perspective is on Matthew 24 and in times prophecies, I just ask you to listen patiently. I'll say some things at some point during this teaching, you're going to go, no, I don't think so. Wait until later. I will explain why I believe what I believe and why I'm saying what I'm saying. And I hope to just show you clearly by Scripture and not just by what Rick thinks. Let me give you a simple chronological outline for the Olivet Discourse. Verse 2 is Jesus' prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Not one stone will be left upon another. And that's the prophecy of the fall, AD 70. But he goes on from there. Beginning in verse verse 4 all the way through verse 8, in response to their questions, he talks about the birth pangs that will lead right up to the end. The birth pangs. One of the reasons, and I'll just put this out here right up front, one of the reasons why I do not believe the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 is, is the context of the rest of this teaching is because Jesus describes a time of growing intensification of what he calls birth pains. And between Jesus even teaching this and the fall, which was only about 27, maybe 30, 30 years later or so after the crucifixion, There was not enough time for the things that Jesus describes just in verses 4 through 8. He says, there's going to be deception. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He says, there's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. And he says, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. We talked about Wednesday night. Here's here's the key to understanding that. He ties these four signs, things that have happened since the beginning of the world, He ties them into this thing. Here's how to know it's the signs of the end and not just signs that have always happened. Birth pains. Contraction. What happens when a woman is having contractions? They get more intense and they get more frequent the closer you get to the birth. And that's what he describes. And I I gave this mathematical equation for you, spiritual equation, if you will, on Wednesday night. Sign times intensity times frequency equals contraction. Take the sign, whether it be war, famine, deception, earthquakes. Take the sign, multiply it by intensity. There have always been earthquakes, but how many earthquakes have there been in the last 30 years? In the last 100 years? There have always been wars. What has happened in wars since 1948? There's not been a day of peace on this planet since the end of World War II. Not a single day. And war has, not only frequent, it's intense because this is the first age where we have nuclear power and can destroy not only entire cities, but entire, entire counties, entire regions. Never been able to do that before. Frequency, intensity, birth pain. And he talks about this increasing of things all the way up to verse 9. So verse 2 is his prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 8, he deals with the birth pains that would increase up to the end. Beginning in verse 9 through 14, Jesus talks about the tribulation. Not just tribulations, not just hard times we have in our lives, but He begins to talk about the tribulation. What is that? We'll get there. Picking up in verse 15, where we'll start today, through verse 28, He goes further into it. He takes you at the midpoint of the tribulation and starts talking about the great tribulation. You think it's bad in the first part of the tribulation? Man, starting around verse 15, something happens that will kick off this horrid time that's even worse than the first part. That will lead right up to the end, verses 29 through 31, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And I believe Jesus is giving us in these 31 verses a chronological explanation of what's coming for Israel and the world. And before I get to verse 15, one other thing you have to know. The atmosphere is essentially Jewish in Jesus' teaching. This is a Jewish Messiah speaking to Jewish followers about Jewish things to come. Well, so why in the church are we studying it? Because there's application. (laughs) And there's implication. And there's plenty for us to understand here and to know. And there is a time coming when a people will sit down and study this to track daily what's happening here on planet Earth. And if my understanding of Scripture is right, you won't be here. But let's see what we can find out and understand about this right now. What is 
the tribulation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus describes it, listen carefully, as that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The tribulation. The prophet Joel refers to it as the day of the Lord, among other prophets. It's also referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. The word week is shaky. I I told you about that last week. I'll mention that again in a minute. The 70th week of Daniel. Jeremiah the prophet refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Why? Because the tribulation directly relates to Jacob's people, Israel. Time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. In fact, if you look at verse 9, it begins saying, They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. He's not talking about the church there. Who, what nation, what people group is hated and has been hated from the beginning and will be hated all the way up to the end? Who more than anybody else as a people are hated? The Jews are. Now, some in the church will take this and go, We're so persecuted. You know what? Some are. Some are. In other parts of the world, Christians being martyred for their faith, how hard was it for you to get here this morning? Well, I had to set my clock forward. (laughs) That was pretty rough tribulation right there. He's not talking to us. He's talking about Israel. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And right now, there are only a handful of nations that even care about Israel anymore. Most nations already hate Israel. One other thing about the church and why I don't think he's talking to us here. Christians are not a nation. We're embedded in the nations. You know, we're in every nation. We have Christian brothers and sisters in Iran, in Russia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel. We have brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all the nations because our citizenship is not of this world. We're citizens of a coming kingdom. And Jesus is going to bring that and reign it in. And man, we're going to be part of that thing. It's going to be awesome. But you is not the church. We are not a nation that's hated by nations like Israel. We just infiltrate the nations. And that's a good thing. Jesus said in John 19.36, My kingdom is not of this world. The Greek word of there is from. Eth, out of. It doesn't come from this world. My kingdom doesn't come from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, he said, and he's talking to Pilate there, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. But he's bringing it, and the kingdom is coming. But before he comes, there will be a time of global tribulation unparalleled since the beginning. What for? I mean, why? What's the reason for this specific tribulation? Turning your Bibles back to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 12. There are many Hebrew scriptures that deal with and talk about the coming tribulation. A time unparalleled, a time never fulfilled in the days of Israel. Even including the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. A time unparalleled, and Zephaniah is just one of many Hebrew prophets who, who says this, but I chose this passage for a reason. Chapter 1, verse 12. The first reason, if you're taking notes, this may sound familiar if you've studied Revelation, we talked about these things, but the tribulation will, number one, be a waking up of all Israel. A waking up of all Israel. When this thing begins to hit, God will be dealing with the Jewish people in a way He has not dealt with them since Old Testament times. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Let me tell you something, with all respect to Jewish people in the world today, that is the heart of secular Judaism. That's it right there. The Lord will not do good or evil. The irrelevancy of God in secular Judaism, where Jews culturally, where Jews nationally, spiritually is another thing. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And he's talking about Jerusalem. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. 
because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither will their silver or their gold be able to deliver them. So whatever happened to your retirement accounts in the last few years, don't worry about it. It's not going to help you anyway. Hopefully it won't matter because you will not be here anyway. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth, all the earth, note that, will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy, for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants on the earth. So not only is the tribulation period a waking up of all Israel, it is a shaking up of all the earth. It is a global judgment that God has promised to bring and has yet to bring. It's not a personal judgment. This is not talking about the judgment where where those who want to be judged by their deeds and their works will come before God for for judgment day. This is talking about global, worldwide judgment. Why does God judge the whole world in this way? Why pour out His wrath on this world? Because even though the world was made through Him, the world did not know Him. John chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is, being, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In verse 28 of that chapter, Paul writes, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Mankind in mass has rejected their very Creator. Mankind on the whole says, we don't want to have anything to do with whatever's out there. We're just going to do our own thing. And so judgment is coming to this earth. And it has been warned about since the days of the flood. Judgment is coming. By the way, something that's interesting, just a side note on the flood, Methuselah, his name, he was the oldest man ever to live. And Methuselah's name means in his death it will come. And it was immediately after the generation after Methuselah died that a man named Noah was raised up to build the ark. In Methuselah's death, indeed it did come, the flood came. There was warning throughout that period of time. Great warning that judgment was coming on the earth. And you know who listened to that warning? Eight people. And the rest of the entire world was destroyed in the flood. Judgment is coming, and it's coming on this world. The tribulation is the time of the outpouring of God's wrath on the entire earth. Revelation chapter 6, verse 19, details this seven-year period of time. Mark that, seven years. At the end of days. Revelation 6 through 19 gives three different massive judgments. The first one being a seal, what we call the seal judgments. Not because they're seals. Seals are broken off of a scroll. Not like seals. It's, you know, <laughs> seals on a scroll. I was thinking that was kind of funny. A seal judgment. The seals are taking over. You know. That's not it. There will be a seal judgment. The second will be called the trumpet judgments. And the third will be called the bowl judgments, where God is literally pouring out wrath on the world in various different ways. Horrific ways. But you need to know this. The tribulation, and we're going to get to verse 15, but hang tight with me. The tribulation itself describes the seven-year period at the end of days, and it all begins very clearly with the wrath of the Lamb. Now I point this out because there are those who believe that the church will go through the tribulation, at least the first half, and then be pulled out mid-tribulation. It's called mid-tribulation rapture. Because the first half of the tribulation, they say, is not a time of wrath. Listen to what people alive at the time had to say about that. Revelation 6.16 They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? That's the first three and a half years of this seven year period and it is called the wrath of the Lamb because it's not the result of man's doing. It's not even the result of Antichrist's doing. The tribulation begins with the raking up by the hands of the Lamb. It is the waking up of all Israel, the shaking up of all the earth, and then the raking up that begins with the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6, and I would say just read the whole chapter, but verses 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 12, and then chapter 8, verse 1, all tell us who it is that breaks these seven seals that are on this scroll. What scroll, Rick? Got to go read the Revelation series, listen to it, and you'll find out. But there's a scroll there with seven seals on it, and John is weeping. Who can 
open this thing? One of the elders there says, check it out. And John looks and it's the Lamb who breaks the seal and every seal that's broken unleashes a judgment. The rise of Antichrist is unleashed. Followed by war, followed by famine, followed by the death of a quarter of mankind. This is in the first half of the tribulation period. Martyrdom, terror, and it's the Lamb who breaks the seals and unleashes this on the world. Kind of hard to imagine being afraid of a Lamb. I mean, can you see in your mind's eye a man running across a field going, The Lamb's coming! The Lamb's coming! You know, and behind him, ah, ah. People say the same thing about Jesus. It's kind of hard to imagine Jesus being judgmental, you know, because he's such a good guy. Gentle and meek and, you know, teacher and healer and wimpy. And yet Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 27, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. John 5.27 And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Did you hear that? Jesus has the authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. What does that mean? He became like one of us. And because He walked on this earth wearing flesh like you wear flesh, like I wear flesh, dealing with struggles, dealing with heartache, dealing with persecution and tribulation, and finally being killed on the cross, no one understands like Jesus. He has every right to judge this world because he is the son of man he earned the right to judge this sets up an amazing paradox for us the truth is that the wrath of the lamb brings about begins kicks off the tribulation but the wounds of the lamb of the lamb bring about our salvation the wrath of the lamb brings tribulation but the wounds of the lamb bring our salvation and I want to tell you this right now and please hear me if you give your life to Jesus right now all the things we're talking about this morning are not for you. You will be saved from, protected from, this time of tribulation. Oh, Rick, you're going rapture theology on us, aren't you? Yes, I absolutely am because I believe that's what the Scriptures say very clearly. Listen to this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God has not destined us for wrath. I know that's hard to understand, so let me read it again. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we go into the tribulation, that verse is violated. We are not destined for wrath. Well, well, what about my sins, and what about judgment on the things I've done? Jesus took it at the cross. There's your tribulation. Look at Jesus on the cross. He took it for you then. So that's the tribulation in a nutshell. There's so much more to understand. If you want the full meal deal, you've got to go study Revelation 6-19. through 19. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, after starting to describe it, you're going to be hated by all nations. At that time, many will fall away. He says people's love is going to grow cold. He says the gospel is going to continue to be preached until all nations, and then the end will come. But listen to this. Verse 15 we begin at the second half of the tribulation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I read that verse and I think, I want to understand what in the world is he talking about? And this verse alone has caused so much misunderstanding and yet it's very straightforward. What is the abomination of desolation? Turn in your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 9, where we were last week. While you're turning there, understand the abomination of desolation, like the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, is deeply rooted in Jewish understanding. The abomination of desolation, as the apostles, the four of them, sat there with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And He said... Understand, the abomination of desolation, when He made that statement, their minds immediately would have gone to a specific point in time. They would have immediately said, oh, I know what he's talking about, and then they would have immediately been confused because Jesus starts to talk about it as something as that had not happened yet. Let me explain. The Jewish prophet Daniel. Jesus references this prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Just looking back, we looked at this last week. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. That's not weeks... Remember, the word is Shavuim in the Hebrew. It's a heptad. It's a unit of seven. Seventy-sevenths have been decreed for your people. And it tells why. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sin. 
to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. All those things are going to take place, the angel Gabriel tells to Daniel, in this 490 year period of time. Where do you get 490 years? 77. 70 units of 7 years each. 70 times 7 is 490. Okay, but how do you really know? I mean, that's nice that you kind of picked that out of the air, Rick, but how do you know that? Well, we talked about it last week. I won't go way into this, but we talked about the fact that the first 483 years were fulfilled precisely just as Gabriel the angel brought to Daniel the prophet. One Shabuim is left. One unit of seven is left, gang. The final seven years is left. Has never happened. Now, if you think Daniel's prophecy is a bit fanciful or maybe even fictional, as some of the higher critics in the seminaries in the church today claim, because it's too literal. The prophecies, we saw so many of them fulfilled, so we had to write it after they happened, looking back. Well, there's a great move of faith there, isn't that? You need to understand, Jesus believed Daniel's prophecy. Jesus declared it as true. Jesus said, when you remember what you heard from Daniel the prophet. This was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Jesus knew who Daniel was. So if you know who Jesus is, then you know who Daniel was. He was the prophet. And everything he declared came true, just as he prophesied it would. He refers to this teaching in Daniel chapter 9 because it is the key link of his teaching in Matthew 24. It's like commentary one to the other. Not only though did Jesus believe in Daniel's prophecy, he fulfilled Daniel's prophecy. At least the first part to a T. Exactly 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes, 483 years after that, here comes Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, riding on a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. He was cut off at Calvary. Approximately 37 years after that, the city and the temple were destroyed, exactly as Daniel said would happen. But Gabriel clearly said 77s were decreed for Israel, not 69 sevens. 490 years, not 483 years. What about the last seven years? What do we do with that? Because we can historically and accurately just say the first 483 years done. Set that on the shelf. We don't even have to talk about that. What about the last seven? That's the tribulation. That's the tribulation. Three and a half years into it, something happens called the abomination of desolation. And that occurrence kicks off, signals the final three and a half years of that seven year period that Jesus calls then the great tribulation. But you might ask, why, if Jesus was right on schedule, if 483 years went by, He was crucified, why, if all that happened perfectly... Weren't there seven years of tribulation immediately from the cross and following? A.D. 33 to A.D. 40. Why can't we see that right there, there was a horrific tribulation that was worldwide and global? Because when Jesus was crucified, the clock stopped. Those of you who have heard this teaching or this theology before and disagree with it, you might go, okay, that's dumb. The clock stops. Why would God say you got 490 years in this period of time and then get down to the last seven years and just stop and go, okay, we're going to wait to finish the rest later. Why would he do that? Well, first of all, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But secondly, understand, there has been a gap. For you and me, it's difficult to get this because time is linear. It never stops. You know, it marches on and on and on. And the older you get, the faster it gets. It, It doesn't stop going. And it hasn't stopped since the beginning, at least to our mind. And yet... For the Lord, time is not about ticking minutes. For the Lord, time is about taking care of business. It's about accomplishing His will. Psalm 31, verse 15 says, My times are in your hand. And sons and daughters of the King, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your times are in His hands, not yours. They have never been in your hands. They will never be in your hands. Daniel 2.21 says it is he who changes the times and the epochs, which raises the question, well, changes, can God change time? I'm not talking about moving a clock forward an hour or back an hour. Can, can God actually stop time? Wouldn't that be cool? He did. Joshua chapter 10. He held the sun at midday while Joshua and the armies fought on until the things were accomplished and then he let it go forward. He stopped 
time. He stopped time. He changed it for Hezekiah. 2 Kings chapter 20. God tells Hezekiah, I'm going to give you an extra 15 years of life. And Hezekiah goes, well, that's cool to know, but can you just give me a sign so that I can be sure? And God says, all right, which way do you want the shadow to go on the stairs, forward or back? And Hezekiah thinks, well, back would be cool, (laughs) because it's impossible. Make the shadow retreat. And so God did. He has control of the times. He can do whatever He wants with the times. He is not bound by time. He controls time. And and, and Hayden, you've got to hear this. God uses His time wisely. (laughs) He's heard me say that before. And I only say that to my son because he is his father's son. And I recall, we're homeschooling Hayden right now, and I just, buddy, I recall being your age and having a homework assignment that could take me five minutes and seven and a half hours later still going. (laughs) So I'm with you, buddy. I got your back. You still have to do your homework, though. (laughs) Students, wouldn't it be great to just stop time? Uh (laughs) You know, school ends on Friday afternoon. It's about 2.45. You just go, click. (sighs) Not only do I have a weekend, i got 400 years before I'm going back there. (laughs) Just stop the whole thing. God can do that. God can stop time. But it's it's not about just stopping time. It's about a, a series of events that are going to happen in a time frame. 483 years of that time frame fulfilled. There's seven years of that time frame that need to be fulfilled that have never happened. Not as described by Jesus, not as described in Revelation, not as described anywhere else in Scripture. The prophetic clock for Israel stopped. Why? Because God stopped dealing directly with His people Israel. Why would He do that? Because. Because Israel rejected Christ. And in the moment of that rejection and at the crucifixion, God said, okay, 483 years are accomplished. We're going to to set this aside. The city was destroyed because God's covering was lifted. Christians, in your life, sometimes you go through pain and hardship and you want to blame Satan or you want to blame the world. I wonder sometimes if the covering hasn't just lifted a bit. You know, because... Your faith really isn't in Him. Maybe it's so in yourself that God says, you want to do it your way? Let me lift the covering a, a tad and let you see what it's like. And that's what I believe He did with Israel. He lifted His covering. And so Rome flooded in. Rome had Israel surrounded for years before that. But they destroyed and decimated the city and the people in 70 A.D. because God's covering lifted. God stopped working with the people. But those seven years were decreed, gang, and when God makes a decree... He comes back to it. He does not forget. He stopped working with Israel to focus his time and attention on somebody else. It's called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I said, I think June 7, 1967 was the end of the times of the Gentiles. That's where it ceased because the Jews took Jerusalem again, which puts us into overtime right now. I'm going to retract that teaching. I didn't want to, but as I studied this, this uh, week and looked through these things, I realized I think I'm wrong on that one. Um, and I, I actually said to the Lord, do I have to tell him that I was wrong? And he said, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I, don't, I don't want to tell him. I know, you need to. Okay. <laughs> actually, the, the truth is, the reason why I did it was to see if anyone was paying attention and testing my teaching. <laughs> And I didn't get one call from you people. Shame on you. Let me read something to you quickly here. You stay in Daniel 9, but just listen to this. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. In talking about the tribulation, this is the Olivet Discourse. This is the teaching of Jesus. Same as Matthew 24. But Luke points out a couple things that Jesus said. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that, listen, all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Same as Matthew 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all the nations. They won't be driven, by the way. Note that. They're not driven into all the nations. They're led captive into all the nations. There will be a a horrible plundering and a capture. 
And Jerusalem, here's the verse, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus places the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled at the end of the tribulation. Which means right now we're still in the times of the Gentiles. That it was not fulfilled June 7th, 1967. So I retract that. I apologize to you, but I do have to say this, gang. Though it's not what I thought, it does not matter what Pastor Rick or any other pastor thinks. What matters is what is the truth. What matters is that you are searching this out yourselves. What does the Scripture say? I believe I have a responsibility to teach truthfully and with integrity, which is why I'm sharing what I am right now. But the responsibility ultimately to know the Word rests with you. So please, always track everything that is taught. Now let me get back to the abomination of desolation there in Daniel chapter 9. I told you it's something deeply rooted in Jewish understanding. We stopped about halfway through verse 26 in Daniel 9. Pick it up there after the city and sanctuary are destroyed. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, verse 27, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, understanding that, let's just go on back to Matthew 24. Since you all got that. Maybe we shouldn't yet. Daniel's describing the 490 years. He has described 483. You get down to the last half of verse 6 and into verse 7, and he's talking about now the last seven years of that 490-year decree. When did that happen? It didn't happen when Jesus was crucified. Well, what about AD 70? That was 40 years later. So it couldn't be 490 years unless you try and move the date of the decree of Artaxerxes. And people do that. They try and move it all around and try and make it to fit into a, a paradigm. But there are some problems with that. Understand that this abomination of desolation, literally the the Greek word and the Hebrew word for abomination indicate idolatry. It is an idol. The thing that's abominable to God, and most abominable to God throughout all history has been idol worship. He hates it. Why? Because it takes our eyes off Him. And puts it on wood and stone and the work of man's hands. He hates idolatry. It is an abomination to Him. The abomination of desolation, according to that word, again, in the Greek and the Hebrew, it means it indicates idolatry. So the abomination of desolation will be an idol set up in the temple in the middle of this seven-year tribulation period. What did Jesus say would be left desolate? He said, your house will be left to you desolate. That's how we know it's going to be set up in the temple. The house is what is desolated. The abomination of desolation... Well, who does that? Who sets up this abomination of desolation? Who is the one who makes desolate? Paul says, Antichrist. Now listen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and, listen, exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Displaying himself as being God. Now some, some today say that this is come and gone. Some want to claim that what Daniel was talking about, what Jesus was talking about, happened in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And there are some reasons why that is impossible. In A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. In AD 70, Titus, the commander, led the Roman legions into Jerusalem and did not, I repeat, historically, did not set up an idol in the sanctuary of the temple. The temple was destroyed. That was horrible. It was a desolation. But it was not the abomination of desolation that happened there. An idol was never set up in the temple by Titus. And by the way, it's interesting... These four guys are sitting there on the Mount of Olives listening to Jesus. He's telling them about these things and the second he says abomination of desolation, they go, oh yeah, I remember that. But that's already happened, Jesus. What are Jesus' words? Back in Matthew 24, he says these words. He says, when you see, not when you saw, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When this happens... 
Jesus is talking about a time yet future, and yet the apostles are remembering a time that had passed. What are you talking about, Rick? 171 B.C. There was a king, king of Syria, named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, he called himself Epiphanes. Actually, he called himself Theos Epiphanes. God manifest. And he came along, and after a failed military campaign against Rome, he turned all of his anger and his vitriol on little Jerusalem. He came down with his armies, and he sacked the city, and he went into the temple. Check this out. He massacred in one day 80,000 Jews in Jerusalem. And after that massacre, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which in Hebrew means Antiochus the loon, the insane. After massacring all these people, he set up an idol, probably to the god Jupiter, in the temple. He went out and on the brazen altar in the courtyard of the temple there, he sacrificed a pig. He had a mixture of pig soup, blood, and pig guts splattered all over the inside of the temple sanctuary and he forced the priest to drink the pig's blood. And it was an abomination of desolation. As a matter of fact, Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 11. Verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. That's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Who is that? Judas Maccabees. Judas and his brothers. They call him Judas Maccabees. Maccabees means the hammer. So Judas the hammer and his brothers, they set up a revolt and five years later drove Antiochus Epiphanes and his Syrian armies out of Jerusalem. They cleansed the temple. They relit the lampstand in the temple. And then they went, oops, there's no more oil to keep the lamps burning. They were afraid, now what are we going to do? To get more oil, to go through the consecration process would take at least eight days. What do we do? (laughs) They prayed for a miracle and they got one. And Jews today celebrate the Festival of Lights, or what you know of as Hanukkah. That's the background of that story. The abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied happened. And hasn't happened. What do you mean by that? Go back to Matthew 24. Look again. Jesus is talking about a time future. But this was something that had happened back in 171 B.C. So the apostles would be doing right now probably what some of you are doing. That's going, huh? I know about the abomination of desolation. It's an idol set up in the temple. We ha- it happened. What are you talking about? What, it's going to happen again? That's right. It is going to happen again. The real abomination of desolation, Jesus says, there on that moment, close to the, you know, a couple days before his death, the real abomination of desolation is yet to come. Jewish people were misinformed. Desolations were determined, Gabriel said to Daniel, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed. Antiochus set up the abomination of desolation in 171 BC, but there was not a complete destruction. Titus came in and did completely destroy the temple in Jerusalem, but he did not set up an abomination of desolation in AD 70. Jesus is talking about something that, with the exception of Antiochus Epiphanes, has never happened. Not yet. Go back to Matthew 24, verse 16. When this happens, when this abomination of desolation is set up, which you understand now, it's an idol set up in the temple... A blasphemous thing. Verse 16, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Why just those who are in Judea? Because it's a Jewish thing we're talking about. And it is Jewish people in Judea, in the land, when they see this, and when they have the understanding coming from these very scriptures we're reading, they are to get out, flee, run. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Now, we don't spend a lot of time on our roofs, unless we're hanging Christmas lights or something. Jewish housetops, even today in Israel, are mostly flat. And time is spent up, that's their patio. So again, we're, we're talking about Jewish things. He says, if you're on the housetop, don't go back down and get the things that are in the house. Verse 18, whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. 
Pray that your flight will not be in the winter. Why? Because it's hard to travel in Jerusalem or in Israel in the wintertime. Ask those who were there on our last trip. (laughs) Or on a Sabbath. If this was a message to the church, that would be irrelevant. We can travel on the Sabbath, no problem. But it's a message to Jews because travel on the Sabbath is next to impossible, especially in Israel. El Al doesn't fly. Jewish taxi cab drivers do not drive. The bus system is shut down. You can't get around. I've been there on the Sabbath. It's frustrating. Especially if you get in the wrong elevator. It's a Shabbat elevator because it stops at every floor on the way down so you don't have to work at pushing a button. (laughs) Pray that it won't be in the Sabbath. Now listen to me. Jesus is warning the people alive at the time to flee. When Antiochus Epiphanes came in, the people didn't flee, they were massacred. In fact, as many possibly as a million Jews were massacred under Antiochus Epiphanes. When Titus came in, the Jews in Israel were massacred. They did not flee to a safe place, a place of protection, like the Bible says will happen during these days. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6 says, The woman Israel, I added Israel, but when you read it, you will understand. You can go study this. But the woman is Israel that's being talked about. Fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nurtured for 1,260 days. Anyone know how long that is? Three and a half years. Middle of the tribulation. Three and a half years. Revelation 12.14 But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, from the presence of the presence of the serpent. Now listen carefully, because this to me is the most clear reason for understanding that the tribulation Jesus is talking about, this seven year period of God pouring out his wrath, and the abomination of desolation that happens in the middle of it, this is the number one reason why it is not something that has yet happened. It can only be future. Listen, verse twenty one. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. Three words. Nor ever will. Mark that game. Something that once it happens is so bad, nothing will ever happen worse than this to the Jewish people. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 confirms this. That day is great so that none is like it and it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. Joel chapter 2 verse 2 There has never been anything like it nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. There won't be anything like it after it. So track this with me. When Antiochus set up his abomination of desolation hundreds of thousands were killed possibly millions. Or or a million, sorry, just a million. When Titus fell Jerusalem, Josephus claimed that 1,100,000 Jews lost their lives. A a desolation even worse. Oh, the idol wasn't set up, but it was a destruction of Jerusalem that was worse than what Antiochus Epiphanes did. But if either of these horrors were the final abomination of desolation, then Jews in the 1930s would have had nothing to worry about. And in fact, there were Jewish rabbis in the 30s with all the the vitriol of, of, of Hitler going out. Jewish rabbis who were saying, don't worry, don't worry. The worst is behind us. Antiochus Epiphanes, fall of Jerusalem 87. That's, it's past. It's not going to happen again. That was the worst it's ever going to be. And they were wrong. By 1945, the world realized that over 6 million Jews were slaughtered in the Nazi Holocaust. And gang, the tribulation is a Holocaust that is worse. And it's coming. Look at verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Oh, okay. So now he's talking about the church, right? The elect? No. Why, why would you think it's the church? Remember, this is a Jewish Messiah teaching his Jewish followers about Jewish things. Yeah, but doesn't the Bible call the church the elect somewhere? Yeah, it does. But why do we assume that that would be us? Do you realize that the elect were first Israel before it was the church? The word in Greek there is eklektos. It means the chosen ones. Well, who are God's chosen people? 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses said, You're a holy people to the Lord your God, for the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel is the original elect. The original eclectos. Psalm 105, verse 6, O seed of Abraham, His servant. O sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. Not sons of Paul. Sons of Peter. Sons of Jacob. Romans chapter 11, verse 28, Paul wrote, From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. God's choice. God's eclectos. From the standpoint of God's elect, they're the chosen ones. I believe this verse here, verse 22, is an encouraging word for those who will be on the world during this, in the world during this time of tribulation. They're going to read this verse, Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. How short? Three and a half years. And someone alive at the time will look at the abomination of desolation, and as they're fleeing the city, a thought is going to enter the mind. Three and a half years is all we have left. That's all we have left. If we hang on, I, I think of that, that cat poster back in the 1970s. Remember the one with the kitten? And it says, hang in there, baby. Hang in there, baby. That's what Jesus is saying. Yes, you are in the midst of a hellish tribulation. Three and a half years are all that's left, though. You can clock it down. And by the way, the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation, partially because we don't know when it's going to happen. If it happened at the end of the tribulation, all you'd have to do is wait for the abomination of desolation to be set up and start counting three and a half years. And you would know to the moment when Jesus was going to come, but we don't know. That's just one of many reasons why I believe the rapture happens before that, along with the verse I gave you earlier, that we are not destined for wrath. Hang in there, baby. Verse 23. (laughs) Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, even if possible, the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, He is here in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, He's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. i got to pause and say this, gang. There is very Christian application in these days of deception right there. Signs and wonders do not indicate the presence of Jesus Christ. Signs and wonders don't indicate that. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying you've got to test everything by the truth of the Word. Everything. If you see a sign or wonder, just because it's a sign or wonder does not mean it's of Jesus. The demonic powers have abilities. Satan has abilities. Things can be done that are demonic and deceitful. And if Jesus is not proclaimed, and that's the second thing, test it by the Word, but, but it's the testimony of Jesus that declares if Jesus is present. If the Holy Spirit, if it's of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will be glorified, Jesus will be lifted up, Jesus will be honored, it will be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And no man, no church, no movement is going to take the credit for it. If it's lifting up a man, a pastor, oh man, he's just awesome. Look at the power he's got. Be careful. If it's a church, wow, but everything happens at that church. Be careful. Unless Jesus is being glorified. And he's being honored. And people are coming in and out of there and they're going, Jesus Christ is, wow, Jesus, Jesus. It is Jesus. Well, that's different. He says, you know what? Even the elect can be misled. The eclectos, the chosen ones of Israel, the elect, the chosen ones in the church, can be misled. Don't be misled. Verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. That one is very easy to explain. Very easy to explain. Not only is Jesus coming from the east, because He will set foot on the Mount of Olives, which is in the east, and then He'll cross there and come into the eastern gate. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 tells us that. But very simply, it's like lightning flashing from the east to the west, because lightning happens, A, in a flash, quickly, His coming will be instantaneous, but also, it's something that's seen visibly. You see lightning flash. The world will see the return of the Son of Man. All people, I'm getting ahead of myself, but all people are going to see His return. So He says, it's like lightning. It's going to happen instantaneously. Everybody's going to see it. I'm coming from the east. Like lightning flashing from the east to the west. And then He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Boy, if I had a dime for every 
every time this has been made into an allegory or a metaphor. It's not. It's very simple. Where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. Have you not seen that in the world? You see the eagle circling in the sky, and you know, oh, there's some dead thing down there they're going after. And that's what he's talking about, literally. What do you mean, Rick? At the end of the tribulation, where the corpses are, there the vultures, there the eagles, there the birds of the sky are going to gather for a feast. Revelation 19, verse 17. I saw the angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. Because at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be this massive wailing of Christ rejecting humanity. And where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And Jesus is signaling now the end of the tribulation. Look at the very next verse. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Why will they mourn? Because there will be full recognition of mankind's rejection of Jesus Christ. Everybody in that moment who has rejected Jesus, they're going to know. They're going to see. When He comes with all His power and glory, the world will begin to weep and mourn because they will realize they missed Him. Revelation 1.7, Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. And at that moment, when things can't possibly get any worse, specifically for the elect, the chosen ones, Israel, and those people, and I believe there will be many who come to faith in Jesus at that time, in that moment, the lightning flashes, Jesus Christ returns in magnificent glory to rule and reign and restore His kingdom. Verse 31 He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. They'll gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. This is the final fulfillment of all of God's promises to restore the Jews to their land, to renew the covenant He made with David for an everlasting kingdom under the authority of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. He comes back to sit on His glorious throne and to bring in the great kingdom of which you and of which I are citizens if you believe in Jesus Christ. If He is your Savior, is He? Is He your Savior today? This whole teaching in Matthew 24, it's great illumination for us, but it is great encouragement for those who will go through this great tribulation. There are going to be people, I, I would stake my life on it, there will be people going, which is great, I can do that because at that point I will be in my glorified body you can't kill me anyway. There are going to be people hanging on every word of Matthew 24. And they're going to be watching it happen before their very eyes. And they're going to know when that abomination of desolation is set up, it's awful, it's terrifying, they're fleeing, but they're going to know it's only three and a half years. Hang in there, baby. Are you dealing with some kind of tribulation yourself right now? Oh, maybe not like this great judgment. But are you going through something that's just tearing you up? Are the days dark for you right now and gloomy and and depressing and you feel like you don't have any hope? This is a great promise. Verse 13, Jesus said, The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Hang in there. Endure. No matter how dark things get right now, the light is coming. Jesus is coming. And when you can't see any possible hope, even for the extent of your days on this earth, know this. Jesus is coming. And He said in Revelation 3.10, because you kept the word of my perseverance, because you hung in there, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Everyone goes through hard times. Everyone struggles. But Jesus says these things, I've spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. 
Brothers and sisters, be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, great are these words and frightening and terrifying if we truly were to allow ourselves to consider what the tribulation means and the great tribulation and the abomination of of desolation. Lord, there are a lot of shuns in there and (laughs) I believe You want us to shun this whole thing by putting our faith in Jesus. By trusting Him. And whether our tribulations are little, little pains in the neck, struggles in this life, or whether it's great tribulation later, for those who never trusted in You, may faith in You be our great salvation. Just as You promised it would be. And so we declare today, Lord, our trust, our faith in You as our Savior, as our Rescuer, as our Deliverer. And even as I pray, if there is anyone here who has not accepted Jesus as Savior, or even someone who has questioned your relationship with Jesus, would you just, in your heart, pray to the Lord right now. Give your life to Him. You don't need to go through this stuff. You don't have to suffer the tribulation that's coming. Pray this in your heart to Jesus. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins. I trust that You went to the cross and You took the full wrath of God against my sins. You took it on that horrible cross. And I believe You resurrected from the dead and that that resurrection is promised to me too. I give You my life. I don't want to control it anymore. And I pray that as You forgive me, Lord, that You will restore me to the life You want for me. And be with me now from this day forward as I trust in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.